0: a conversation and Jesus knows what they're thinking he responds to their thoughts before they've even voiced it on their lips he turned water to wine he created food for 5000 and 4000 people on separate occasions from a few loaves and a few fish he walked on water amidst a tumultuous sea and on another occasion he rebuked the wind and waves and they instantly obeyed him he cast out demons he healed the sick he gave lame men the ability to walk He restored the flesh of lepers. He made blind eyes see. And he raised dead men to life. And even with all of this, we know that the recorded miracles of Jesus are just the tip of the iceberg. John 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So with all of those things, then John says, catch-all, by the way, there's so many other things to talk about what Jesus did that we couldn't even write them all. The world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written of all the things that Jesus did. How many times do we have those summary statements? And Jesus was healing people in that place. Jesus was teaching and healing. What all things was He healing there? We're not given all the details. But the ones that we are are just so... Awe-inspiring. And the very things that Jesus did were prophesied hundreds of years earlier. His life was one fulfillment of prophecy after another. From cradle to grave, to resurrection for that matter, His life fulfilled every jot and tittle of the prophets and the law. They were meant, all of this thing, all of the law and prophets were ultimately pointing forward the one, and that is Jesus. Jesus had performed so many signs before them. Yeah, He performed 90 acts of power, miracles. He was able to do things that other people cannot do. But they functioned not just as a demonstration of power, but they functioned as signs. A sign is something that points to something beyond itself. It itself causes contemplation. It causes us to consider what is this thing actually pointing toward? Each of the miracles themselves was supposed to demonstrate the reality of who Jesus was. They were meant to lead people to question, who is this one who does these things? We have a couple of occasions where questions like that come up, like, who is this that commands the wind and waves and they obey him, right? The question is, who is this? The disciples, remember, were scared for their life because of the storm. They'd never seen a storm like that. They were fishermen. They knew storms. But this storm, they're like, we're going under. It's all over. And when Jesus finishes calming the storm, the picture that we get in that account is that the disciples are more concerned after the storm has been filled because they're wondering, who is this in the boat with us? <laughs> who is this that can take a storm like that and say, be still? And it all goes still. How about when Jesus... Tell that paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Remember the question that rises in the crowd? Who is this that can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Those are but two good questions that arose, but it seems that understanding of the seemingly obvious answer was lacking. People were not able to trace the miracle to its what the sign pointed to. But if the signs were given to generate faith, then how do we understand this wide-scale disbelief that existed amidst the the stellar amounts of miracles that Jesus was performing? How could so many people shrug them off and remain unbelieving? I just want to say that we know that John is concerned with this question. How do I know it? Well, besides the fact that he's going to answer and give us a reason for this in the text before us, he starts off his gospel bringing up this issue. John 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. From the get-go, from the very beginning pages of his gospel, John has said, Jesus, the Word, the Word through whom all things came into being, the Word who was with God and was God, this Word, Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. They rejected Him. So now John is going to offer us further explanation as to why this should not, why this shouldn't be all that unsettling. He's going to give us a reason as to why this rejection should not unsettle us. And that leads us to point number two, the mockery that Jesus patiently endured. The mockery Jesus patiently endured. We spend most of our time here this morning. There are two groups that are indicated in the text before us, two groups of negative response that we need to consider together. The first group is a group of eyewitnesses that lacked faith. A group of eyewitnesses. People who had seen these things happen. And they lacked faith. This may be a sort of climax of sorts in, as John records, the nation's unbelief. Remember, news of Lazarus' resurrection from the dead by Jesus had traveled through the countryside. So much so that the Jews are even thinking, we should probably kill him. (laughs) We should probably do away with this guy because... He is not only going to be a testimony by his word, but by his very living. This guy is evidence of the power of Jesus Christ. We need to get rid of him. I wonder if they were worried about doing that because Jesus might just raise him again from the dead, dead again, right? But, but they, they were concerned about the news traveling about this Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. Jesus had just ridden into Jerusalem in a donkey's colt during Passover. Remember, we're here in the last week of Jesus' life. He came into the town. He cleansed the temple and he began teaching and healing in the temple court. We're even told that Gentiles approached Jesus in that place to meet with Him. Everything seems to be going so well until we read the whole of verse 37. So many signs being performed by Him, but they were not believing in Him. This is certainly not an isolated rejection. We've seen this already in our Gospel accounts. But it's perplexing nonetheless. How could the Jews maintain their obstinate unbelief? And this overwhelming rejection by the Jews has caused some to say this is troublesome. Some skeptics have argued that if Israel, who is awaiting the Messiah, would reject Jesus and his claim to be Messiah, well, wouldn't that speak against the reality of Jesus being the Messiah? I and mean, that's the question. I mean, if here we have God's people who've been awaiting the coming of the Messiah and Jesus comes as the Messiah, the Christ, and they reject him as the Messiah, the Christ, then doesn't that stand against him as being the Messiah, the Christ? How could the ones who are most familiar with the Old Testament and its prophecies miss the one to whom they all pointed? That's the question. And John provides us with an answer. He explains that these, this response from the Jews is no surprise at all. John explains it was all foretold by Isaiah. And he gives us two quotes from Isaiah. The first comes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the very first verse in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? The the point being here is that not many. Not many people have believed his message. Now, Isaiah could speak that regarding his own ministry. We'll talk some more about that in a minute. Isaiah was set up with that reality from the beginning of his ministry. But he says in Isaiah 53.1, Who has believed our message? Who's listened to me? And then he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the power of God been shown? Who recognizes the power of God? Who listens to God's words and who recognizes God's power? That's the question. And Isaiah lived a life of watching God's people reject both God's word and God's power. He, he watched that you know, unfold before him. And so John picks up on this language and says, you know what? What Isaiah experienced, Jesus has as well. Jesus is one whose words were not taken to heart. Even when He impressed people with His words, He said, nobody speaks like Him. I mean, He doesn't speak like the scribes and Pharisees. always appealing to some other authority. He speaks as one having authority. They can even be astonished by that reality and meanwhile not take His words to heart. Who's believed Jesus' message? The answer be, not many. To whom has the power of God been revealed? Relatively few rightly understood at least the signs that Jesus performed. They saw some of it. They again had some of that awe factor, but their hearts weren't transformed by it. They weren't able to connect the dots. And these miracles had not only been witnessed, but those who had been healed and those who had been brought back to life were themselves testifying an evidence of this marvelous power. The Jews may have seen Jesus' miracles, but they couldn't perceive how these miracles pointed to Jesus' power and compassion as the Son of God. They couldn't see how these were all intended to point us to recognize who Jesus is and what He came to do. They couldn't get past this one, this one born in Nazareth. They couldn't get past this teacher from Galilee. They couldn't see His granting of forgiveness pointed to His ability as the God-man to reconcile sinful man with a holy God. They couldn't see in His healing that He was declaring that He was the great physician who could take care of all of our illnesses and sicknesses ultimately one day in the new heavens and new earth. They couldn't see in His raising the dead that He was the life giver. The one who came to not only give physical life, but eternal life, spiritual life, and give it abundantly. Now, many years prior to this, Isaiah prophesied regarding Jesus that He, as the ultimate suffering servant, This is the next two verses in Isaiah 53, right after verse verse 1. What do we have right after that? He would have no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Wow! It's exactly the reception that Jesus received. He was not esteemed. He didn't have a, a stately form. People weren't attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. See, John is saying that not only was Jesus' coming prophesied, but Jesus, the response that people would have to Jesus was prophesied. Paul deals with this issue in Romans 9 through 11. He had the same question. Paul is struggling with the same question. In that text, beginning of Romans 9, he struggles with the fact that his countrymen, according to flesh, aren't believing in Jesus. He says, if I could, I would wish that I myself were anathema, sent to hell, that they might be saved. He said, if that was possible, I would pray the impossible prayer. If I could be condemned that my countrymen might be saved... So be it. And you have to get what's really at the heart behind Paul here. It's not just a, well, many for one. What his concern is, is the justice of God. He's concerned about God's reception with people. He's saying people are concerned. people might be concerned that God has actually failed to accomplish what He came to do. People might say, object to God. Well, you sent Jesus. He died and rose again. But there's so few that believe in Him. You failed in your purpose how dare we say that God has failed in any of His purposes? So how does he go on to explain this? He goes on to say in Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, But it was not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And it is from that point, understand Romans 9, which we're all familiar with, like predestination, election, all of that. Understand that that all flows out of his concern about the justice of God, God upholding his promises, fulfilling what he's purposed to do. What he says is that not all Israel is Israel. That's what he says. He says, not just because you were born from Abraham, does that mean you're one of the children of promise? And then he goes on to describe this reality by picking actual children from Abraham and Isaac. And on the story goes. The point is that God's sovereign plan included this wide-scale rejection by the Jews. Jewish unbelief was not only foreseen by Scripture, but demanded by it. And the unbelief of the people did nothing to remove the reality of what had taken place. All that the Jewish unbelief showed was the depravity of their hearts. That's it. You see, while the rejection of Jesus was a willful rebellion by the Jews... The blindness and hardness of hearts was also a condition which God brought upon his people as an act of judgment against them. Again, looking back here to John 12. After you see, look at verse 39. And for this reason, they could not believe for Isaiah has said again, he has blinded their eyes and he's hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Now, this is a quote from earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. Also familiar probably with that passage. These are probably the two passages that we're familiar with in Isaiah. If you've said any time in Isaiah, you know Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. And Isaiah 6 and Isaiah's vision, his being able to see the glory of God filling the temple. And we have a quote now here from Isaiah 6.10. Here we are told that Isaiah was given a difficult task. He's told that your purpose in preaching, in ministry, is to render the hearts of this people insensitive, to make their ears dull, to make their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And when we read that, both in Isaiah and now here, in reference to Jesus' ministry, perhaps our first reaction to that is a whole lot of questions. And a whole lot of confusion. What? You're saying here that God set up someone to purposely harden hearts? To render hearing ineffective? To make seeing harder? Isn't God loving and gracious? Why would God do something like that? Many have tried to alter these words to remove what's plainly stated. But such actions are not only reprehensible because we are not to alter the word of God in any way, but they're unwarranted. The context both there in Isaiah as well as here makes abundantly clear just how loving and gracious God is. God is not a cruel monster longing to devour. Jesus' advent was, remember, not at all necessary He wasn't necessary, Jesus' coming wasn't necessary in order for the whole human race to be sent to hell for judgment. The world stood condemned already. Also remember that God is not dealing with morally neutral human beings. It's not like if God's dealing with people who have never sinned in their life and now he goes, okay, I'm going to harden your hearts and stuff up your ears and clog your eyes and you're not going to be able to see what I'm doing. We need to first of all recognize our guilt and once we do, we quickly Realize that we have no platform from which to cry out to the righteous one that he has done something unfair. From what position can we stand in judgment over the righteous God? You see, it's a sheer act of grace and mercy that he puts up with us for any length of time and that he offers forgiveness and cleansing in his son at all. And God has been tremendously long-suffering with wicked men. I spoke with a student this last week. Kind of a moment with one student in my office, and a student is asking, is struggling with the issue of God sending people to hell that live in nations where the gospel is not. And his objection to Christianity as a result is on the basis of how can that be a just God who sends people to hell because they've never heard about Jesus? Because they live in a country where Jesus hasn't been proclaimed. Because obviously, perhaps you've come across those questions before as well. Maybe you've had those questions. Maybe you've encountered people with those questions. And certainly there's many different things that could be said. But among the things that should be said, I would mention these. First of all, we must remember that God does not send anyone to hell for merely not hearing about Jesus. Hell is the place for sinners. And we have all sinned and violated and gone against God's will, whether it has been written because we have the Bible or against our consciences with with which God has written his law on our hearts. God has made enough evident about himself that the whole world comes under rightful condemnation. And so we need to recognize that hell is a consequence not for failing to hear the gospel, but because we're sinners. And a righteous God must punish sin. Also, we must remember that Don't forget that God is not under any obligation to save any. This is one of those things where we need to flip around the question, why does anyone go to hell? A better question is, why does anyone go to heaven? How is it possible that God, a righteous God, can have any sinner in heaven? And that's where we get to the glories of the gospel. That God has provided a means by which he remains just, and he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The problem is often that we start from a... Wrong vantage point. We start with this perspective of, oh, there's all these innocent people. Stop. There are no innocent people. We're all guilty. Secondly, well, God, he, he has to get, the, God has to do nothing. He's not under obligation to you. As soon as we clear those two things up, then we can land with a third thing. That God saves at all is a demonstration of his unmerited favor. It's a demonstration of his grace and love. God has been tremendously long-suffering with wicked men. How do we deal with this hardening of hearts? How do we deal with this? Well, John quotes Isaiah because Jesus' ministry mimics that of the prophet. When Isaiah volunteered for service, he cried out, Here I am, send me! You remember this is after Isaiah is cleansed with the coal and all the rest. He says, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. living among the people of unclean lips. He's cleansed. And then he says, I need something to go. And he goes, Here I am, send me! And so he says, All right. This is going to be your job. You're going to render hearts insensitive. You're going to make their ears dull. You're going to make their eyes dim. And Isaiah then wonders after being given this task, How long, O Lord? How long will this be my task? And he says, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. How would you like that for your call to ministry? You're going to proclaim a message to people, and the purpose of your ministry is to make them hardened to the gospel. You're going to continue to proclaim the truth, and their response to that is going to be more and more hard, And how long are you going to do this? You're going to do it until they're all destroyed. You see, the unreceptive hearing which Isaiah encountered was not at all spent, was not all spent during his ministry. In other words, there was more unreceptive hearing to go even beyond the life of Isaiah. There was ongoing rejection of many of the prophets of God throughout the Old Testament, culminating ultimately in a final and ultimate application in the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus will even make parables along these lines where there's a owner of a field. He sends servant after servant to get the produce and they keep being sent away. And eventually he sends his son. The owner of the field sends his son believing that, well, certainly they'll honor my son. And what do they do with his son? Here's the heir. Let's kill him. You see, they were acting just as the people of the Old Testament did against the prophets of God. They were unreceptive in their hearing. And really all that was going on here is that their ministries just highlighted the fact that these people were already in rebellion. The hardness of heart that was brought upon these people wasn't being brought to people who were otherwise soft of heart. They already had hardened hearts. They already had failed to listen. They already failed to see. This is, by the way, a story which has given a prelude to earlier in the Old Testament. Do you remember how Moses' signs were received by the Egyptian leaders, in particular Pharaoh. Statements are made which indicate that Pharaoh hardened his heart. There are also indications that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There are also some constructions where it says, Pharaoh's heart was hard, which leaves it up for grabs. who's, Who's the prime mover here? Like That question has plagued many people. But I don't think we have to make one decision versus the other. They're both true. Statements are made which indicate that the hardness of heart that's found in Pharaoh was both evidence of Pharaoh's sin as well as evidence of God's judgment. The hardness found in Pharaoh was both a result of Pharaoh's sin as well as an ongoing judgment from God against Pharaoh. And not only did God foresee that Pharaoh was, would harden his heart, but he even planned for it. Because even before he sends Moses, he tells Moses in Exodus 7.3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart... Now listen to this, here's the reason, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now contemplate this correlation. In hardening Pharaoh's heart, it allowed for an ongoing display of the power and greatness of God. He demonstrated his power over all of the Egyptian false deities. And he made such a display of his power that people are still talking about the Exodus today. It still is generally known, even in a biblically illiterate culture, most people know about the Exodus. God, through this, put on display His greatness. And in Jesus' ministry, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, such that these people are without excuse. They are. It's not as if we're talking about morally neutral individuals who then have hardened hearts. They've already hardened their hearts. They've already sealed over their eyes. And God's now saying, I'm going to settle them into their hardness. I'm going to make their hearts like concrete. Why? Because God's going to be glorified through the coming judgments that will fall on Pharaoh's stubborn pride and on his arrogance and on his rebellion. So God, an even grander display, would put on display His truth, His goodness, His beauty by accomplishing redemption in the midst of Israel's rebellion." God would judge Israel's stubborn, blind, hardened hearts by hardening and blinding them further that he might put on display the glorious riches of his patient endurance. Here's one of those moments where we come undeniably to a confrontation. We come face to face with the idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, right? almost instantly you start talking about God hardening people's hearts and people go well that's not fair right?" that's instantly enough. how can God call them guilty then you know, that's, those are the questions and if you read Romans 9 by the way if you're reading it right you'll come to those questions and Paul has answers for those questions as you work through there but can I just use one word it's called compatibilism it's a theological term which just means this God is sovereign and man is responsible and they're not in contradiction with one another they would be held together You see, when God blinded eyes and he hardened hearts, it wasn't contrary to the will of these people. It wasn't that God took people that were like, oh, I just love Jesus. I just want to serve him with all my heart. And then God says, no, harden that heart. Right? That's the picture sometimes people go, isn't that unfair? These are people who hate Christ. These are people plotting his death. They want nothing to do with him. And God says, I'm hardening you in your sin. You need to picture this rightly. We need to come to reckon with the depravity of the human heart. These men had already rejected Christ by their own deliberate and consistent choice. Carson explains, T.A. Carson, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate. So I have to quote him. I couldn't come up with words like that. Cursing morally neutral and morally pure beings but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. Another way to do this is the sin of their unbelief has its own consequence. Beware, friends, should you harden your heart. Because should you harden your heart, you may be hardened in your hardness. Psalm 81, verses 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Three times in Romans 1, we have God giving people up, giving them over, giving them over, giving them over. See, it's the grace of God that causes our hearts to be softened and our consciences to be pricked. Thank God that He brings us under conviction. When's the last time you said to God in prayer, Thank you, God, that you bring conviction to me. Thank you, Lord, that you show me my sins. Thank you that you have made me receptive to your word. That is a grace from Him. Our hearts tend towards hardness. God is the one that softens the heart. He makes the conscience um, be prickable such that we would recognize and see our sin. God ultimately doesn't have to exert some special power for depraved, fallen, wicked sinners not to believe. He merely needs to leave the sinner to himself. As Pink declares, it's an unspeakably solemn thing to trifle with the overtures of God's grace. Seek the Lord while He may be found. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The point is that when people, after repeated invitations and warnings, reject and spurn God and the gift of His Son, God hardens them in order that those that they would not... Those who are not willing to repent are made not able to repent. They will not even be a sham of outward, hypocritical, disingenuous repentance. There will be none of it. You ever noticed that? Have you ever talked with an individual the other day? Watched a family member die at an old age. Person had been rejected the gospel throughout his life, and on his deathbed was just as hard as he had ever been. In that moment, you go. Wouldn't he at that moment go, hey, it's all over. Here's an opportunity to come to Christ. Like The gospel is still available to him. He can take a whole life of sin and he could bring it to Jesus. And Jesus could forgive him of whatever it is and cleanse him and give him his righteousness and bring him to heaven. And in that moment, he clenched his fists and his teeth and remained stubbornly unrepentant. Remember, what's required in salvation is for God to grant us repentance and faith. We have to be drawn by the Father. We have to be born again. And While Jesus was shining as the light of the world, Israel was sitting largely in darkness. But it wasn't for lack of light. It wasn't for lack of evidence. It was for lack of vision. It was their willful blindness of their eyes, the hardness of their hearts that kept them in the darkness. But this willing rejection was simultaneously a manifestation of God's judgment against them. It could be simultaneously said that they would not come to Jesus and they could not come to Jesus. Both were true. This so is why, again, Romans 1, with the depiction of God giving people over. Homosexuality is used in particular there in that text to d- describe this. Homosexuality is itself a sin, but it's also depicted there as a judgment. It's both a sin and a judgment. It says God is giving them over to these vile passions to do what is unnatural, The picture there is that, yes, it's obviously sin. It's been declared as such in other places in Scripture as well. But it's being depicted there as a statement of God's judgment against the wicked people who fail to honor God as God, who suppress the truth of unrighteousness, who exchange the glory of the incorruptible creator for that of the image of corruptible creatures and 4 legged animals. But ultimately, the point of connection with Isaiah's prophecy is for this reason, To prove the point that God's purpose and plan was not being frustrated by the seemingly turn, the seeming turn of events. In fact, the events were transpiring precisely as God had foretold they would transpire. All the characters are fulfilling their respective roles. All the antagonists are coming together to accomplish their plans, or so it would seem. God has worked through this very rejection to bring salvation to the entire world. So, rather than wringing our hands over the unbelief of the world, we ought to rejoice in a sovereign God who accomplishes His purpose even through the unbelief of people. Leanne Moore says, The ultimate cause of all there is is a genuinely theistic universe must be found in the will of God. God's purposes are not frustrated by the opposition of evil people. They are accomplished. God is so great that He accomplishes His plan Even through the dastardly plans of evildoers. John indicates that Isaiah, what Isaiah saw here, this is super fascinating, was Jesus. These things Isaiah spoke because he saw his glory. And he spoke concerning him. In this far off vision, Isaiah was given a glimpse of the Messiah. We know in Isaiah 53, everybody instantly connects that. That's Jesus. Like, that's the crucifixion. But interesting here, he makes this statement after quoting from Isaiah 6. And there in Isaiah 6, he says that he saw the glory of the Messiah. He saw Jesus' glory. Pink says, one of the sublimest descriptions of the manifested deity found in all the Old Testament is here applied to Jesus. The one born in Bethlehem's manger, was none other than the throne-sitter before whom the seraphim worship. God had taken every element into account, for it was and is His story. It's upon this, this dark backdrop that He would make a public display of the greatness of both His wrath and His love, His justice and His mercy, His anger and His grace, His power and His compassion. Christ's enemies would gather together, plot against Jesus, they'd bring him to the cross, but the cross would give way to the crown. Jesus' humiliation, his suffering, his death would be swallowed up by victorious resurrection, exaltation, and never-ending life. There's a second group that's present here, though, as well. There are some that were told were believing, but weren't making profession. There are some that believed, however, even among the leaders were told, But their belief didn't make it to a public hearing because they feared that if they professed faith in Christ, it would have implications on their entrance into the synagogue. They were concerned they'd be excommunicated if they made public testimony regarding Jesus. Some have said that maybe you could describe them as having minds that were persuaded, but hearts that weren't converted. They were scared to identify with Christ for fear fear of being kicked out of the religious community. Remember this, too. That would have both religious and social Repercussions for them. They cared more about, ultimately, this is what John says. They cared more about, literally, the glory of men than the glory of God. Oh, I translated the applause of men, the accolades of men, the approval of men, than the approval, the accolades, the praise of God. At the point where believing Jesus might cost them something, they didn't believe. We still deal with people of the same variety today. Or maybe on a piece of paper where it doesn't mean anything otherwise, they'll mark, yeah, I'm a Christian. Maybe on one of those surveys. But when it comes to the very the way they live their life, Christ has no impact on the way in which they live. A man who is born again is transformed. And while we're not saved by works, we're saved for good works, and we will be transformed and made different. It's interesting that Romans 10, 9, and 10 includes both believing and confessing. In the description of those who are saved... I think the point is that they go together. What would it mean to believe but not confess? What would it mean to believe and not confess? You must not succumb to the error of private Christianity. Private Christianity is a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as a private Christian. No such thing. If you're a Christian, you've been united to a community. So you are part of the people of God. You're part of a community. How do you do any of the let us exhortations of Scripture apart from having somebody other than yourself. (laughs) You need to have more than one, at least, bare minimum, in order to practice those things. And not only that, but we're made ambassadors when united to Christ. We can't help but tell others about Him. It's sad that the reaction of these rulers is not an isolated occurrence. It still happens to this very day. There are many who operate out of self-interest, who prefer the approval of sinners over God's approval, who work their whole life to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their souls. Chapter 12 ends with what should be understood as a summary of Jesus' ministry. It's an invitation here to believe upon Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus didn't tire in calling those in darkness to come to Him the light. And so point number three, we see the message that Jesus proclaimed. First of all, just three quick things to say here. First, that Jesus was specially sent by God the Father. He repeatedly made that clear. He acted in accordance with God's will. He spoke in accordance with his Father's word. Everything he said, he said what his Father told him. He didn't speak on his own initiative. The relationship is also seen between him and his Father throughout his ministry. There is no separation between Jesus and the Father. If you believe in Jesus, you believe in the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. This is because Jesus is uniquely able to reveal the Father to us as God in the flesh. Thus faith in Jesus, as Carson says, is not faith in a merely human agent, one more prophet, but faith in God, mediated by God's supreme self-disclosure, the Word incarnate, the God-man, His unique Son. If it's not faith in Him, then it's not faith at all. And so closely is the Son, the Word, identified with the Father, that to see Jesus is to see the Father who sent Him. Jesus was specially sent by God the Father Second thing, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus describes himself, again, He is the light of the world. He calls men out of darkness. He's the sole giver of eternal life. What joy unending there is in that truth, that if you accept Jesus' words, if you trust in this person, you will receive eternal life. Thirdly, what also is made plain in these last verses in chapter 12, is that there is a judgment coming. There is a last day approaching. There's a last day approaching. Jesus says, I did not come to judge. Now, how do we reconcile that with... We also know that God will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, having furnished proof of this by raising him from the dead. That come from the book of Acts. So he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, having pr- furnished proof of this by raising him from the dead. Who is that? Jesus. So he's going to judge the world... Through Jesus, one day, Jesus, meanwhile, says, "I didn't come to judge the world." What's this reference to? It's reference to Jesus' first coming, his first advent. He didn't come to judge the world. The world already stood condemned. We had this read in John three. He believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. (laughs) The judgment's already fallen. You're already guilty. Jesus didn't come to judge. He came to save. His first coming was all about rescuing sinners. He came to save the lost. But to reject Jesus' words and His person and His work is to invite to yourself certain judgment. He came to save the world, but should you reject God's Son, you will reap the consequences of that choice. Reject Jesus and you reject God's means of saving you. Reject the Son and you reject the Father. For Christ and the Father are one. This last day is coming. There is coming a day when God will bring everything to conclusion. That day is just as set in God's eternal purpose as the first day was. God, all of history is laid bare before God. He is the one providentially orchestrating all things. And that last day will come as a thief in the night, we're told. And on that appointed day, God will judge the world in righteousness. All the deeds of darkness will be brought to light and all evil will be vindicated. God's holy wrath will be satisfied and His justice will be upheld. On that day, God's Word, spoken by the Incarnate Word, Jesus, is going to bring to light all those who remain in their sin. All those who are not forgiven by union with Jesus will see the penalty for their sins and will face eternal punishment in hell. Yet the good news is this. There is right now. There is right now. Jesus told His ears before withdrawing, again at chapter 12, Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light. The darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. For a little while the light is with you, he said. While you have the light, believe in the light. He's saying time is short. Time is limited. We're not guaranteed a tomorrow Ryle says, the world shall not always go on as it does right now. Buying and selling and sowing and reaping and planting and building and marrying and giving in marriage. All of this will come to an end at last. There is a time appointed by the Father when the whole machinery of creation will stop. There is an end. There is a last day coming. And so the opportunity to come to Christ will not be offered to us indefinitely for some of you, it's possible that right here, right now, will be the last time you ever hear the gospel spoken. It is possible this will be the last time you ever hear the gospel spoken. You could suffer from a stroke. There could be a terrorist attack. There could be, you could die in any number of ways. Accidents on the way home. This might be the last opportunity you have to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Regardless, there's a day coming... When the means by which you can be cleansed and be forgiven will be removed. Salvation is presently being offered, but a day is coming when the day of salvation will be past, And all that is remaining is a terrifying expectation of judgment. What a contrast is set up here in the text. We've got Israel. Blind, hardened, resistant, not submissive to God the Father. And then we have Jesus. Tender, gracious, compassionate, submissive to his Father. The Jews are plotting to put God's Son to death to save their positions and their influence, their power, their prestige, while Jesus was willing to lay aside His power, lay aside His privilege, lay aside His high and exalted place in heaven and come humbled even to the point of death on the cross for the purpose of granting eternal life. They're plotting Jesus' death while Jesus is plotting eternal life. The Jews blindly condemned Jesus to die while Jesus the light offers forgiveness and life. The people yearned for Jesus' judgment while Jesus was yearning for their salvation. You see, it's time for all of us to do some reflection. Will you repent and trust in Christ? Will you stop making excuses for your sin? And realize that you don't have any excuse before a holy and righteous God. That you need His forgiveness. You need to be cleansed. And the only hope that any of us have is to trust in a Savior who died in the place of sinners and offers His righteousness that we might be made right and put in right standing with God. Bruce says it this way, the message which proclaims life to the believer is the message which proclaims judgment to the disobedient. Judgment is inevitable for those who turn their back on life. I ask if you take time to pause and reflect at the end of days. I ask if you sometimes take moments in which you reflect upon the fuller scope of your life. It's always appropriate to respond to any time with the Lord and His Word with a time of reflection. Asking, and I want to ask this one pointed question, have you made preparations for the life to come? Have you thought about the life that is to come after death. Are you on right terms with God? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Are you hidden in Christ? Are you sure that there's no condemnation for you? Or are you counting God's patience and long suffering lightly and just storing up for yourself wrath in the coming day of judgment? We would do all very well. To heed Moses' exhortation in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Choose Jesus who is the life and you will receive truly eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank You for the marvelous gift of Your Son. It's incredible to think the marvelous miracles He performed and yet the way in which He was soundly rejected by the masses. We know that even these events were being used by You and orchestrated by You to bring about salvation to all those who would trust in Him. To bring about redemption And if You can work through the rejection of of Your Son to bring about such a glorious end, we know that in the everyday circumstances we encounter rejection that You are still at work and can bring to pass Your good purposes. Help us to trust You in those moments. Help us to recognize that You are at work. And Lord, I pray for those who are lost in this room. This may indeed be the last time they hear the Gospel. And if that be the case, I pray that they would savingly receive Jesus Christ. They would open their eyes, make soft their hearts, cause them to receive Jesus, to yearn for Him, to long for Him, to love Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Cause them to be born again. Grant them repentance. Grant them faith in Your Son. Thank You that You have made a way by which we can be made right with You. Ask that you would continue to save a great host of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We know that you're doing that. And we know that one day, heaven will be filled with a redeemed humanity. New heavens and new earth will be set up. And we look forward to that wondrous day. In the meantime, help us to be consistent with the gospel. Telling others who are lost about a wondrous Savior and Lord. We pray in His name, Jesus Christ. Amen.